Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab Bintinas, and today's guest is Trisha Pethik, a Muslim chaplain and a contributor to the book Mantle of Mercy, Islamic Chaplaincy in North America. Trisha is a seminary-trained tra- chaplain who has served in university, hospital, and correctional settings. She has an MA in Middle East Studies and an MA in Islamic Studies and Christian and Muslim Relations. Trisha is also the founding director of Muslim Prisoner Project, a nonprofit that serves Muslim inmates and their chaplains by providing religious materials and aid gifts to the children of incarcerated Muslims. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Thank you for having me. So to set the stage for our listeners, uh, I was sent the book Mantle of Mercy to review for Muslim Matters. And while my written review is still in the works, it was such an interesting book that I really wanted to just chat with somebody about it. And who better than you? And I thought it was actually really great when I got the book and I was looking at the list of contrib- contributors. And I was like, oh, my God, I know Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun little surprise for me. And yeah, so like the book itself introduces readers to the field of Islamic chaplaincy, which is described as different from an imam-like position or the usual roles of da'wah in the Muslim community. So as somebody who has obviously a lot of experience in this, could you just elaborate for us what exactly is Muslim slash Islamic chaplaincy versus how we usually conceptualize of da'wah in Islamic studies? Sure. I would say that chaplains are religious leaders who serve in public institutions. So those can be hospitals, those can be prisons, uh, that can be universities, that can be the military. Because the United States Constitution has carved out a role for religion uh, in public life. So there's no, obviously, there's no established religion in the United States, but the practice of religion is facilitated and guaranteed by the First Amendment. So um, I think there's a direct correlation between uh, the First Amendment right to religious practice and the chaplaincies that we find in our public institutions. I would actually go to uh, Joshua Salam's article. He provides a, a short sort of distinction. Uh, he says an imam is there to preach, teach, lead prayers, and if trained to provide religious legal guidance. The social worker is best equipped to connect people with a variety of resources, including financial, housing, medical, and mental health. The chaplain can compassionately accompany people as they journey and explore their spiritual struggles. A chaplain provides a listening presence while congregants process times of joy or moments of stress and anxiety. And that's from his contribution to the book called A Chaplain's Call for Pastoral Care in the Masjid. I have also conceptualized it as an imam is going to tell you how to live, how you should live your life. And a chaplain is going to ask you, how is that attempt working for you? So it's kind of just a slightly different angle. Obviously, there's overlap between all these roles. Um, There's certainly an aspect of uh, many imams in their duties that has chaplaincy components. And there are components to chaplaincy that include, for example, leading the Friday prayer, depending on where you are. So there is some overlap, but it is a different um, it, it 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 has different origins and it has different emphasis. 
No, thanks for elaborating on that. And I'm glad you brought up Joshua Saddam's essay as well, because I actually really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was one of the, I don't want to say like one of the best in the anthology, but one that I really related to, uh, because I've always kind of grown up in, you know, like the Muslim bubble of like da'wah amongst Muslims. And a lot of that is focused, as you said, like what an imam would do is like tell you how to do things, right? But now as we are seeing different forms of inter-Muslim religious care, I guess you could call it. And I myself, I'm getting trained. I'm in a college program um, for community work. I'm seeing a lot of overlap there in terms of just being there as a supportive figure, being somebody who works with people not to not to solve their problems for them, but just to be with them as they try and figure things out on their own and just being able to to be a presence, being able to maybe connect them to certain resources in, not, again, not a, not a formal way necessarily, but you know, just exploring a situation, a personal issue, whatever it might mean. And of course, with Muslim chaplaincy, that does entail more of just being a, how should we put it? I don't want to say like spiritual guide because that gives off certain connotations in and of itself. But yeah, just be, being a believer who is assisting other believers in a gentle way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the term that's often used is journeying with someone. I've seen that sort of invoked a lot, uh, being a non-judgmental presence, although I think there are some caveats um, to that and how that's often talked about. So how would you describe some of your personal experiences in chaplaincy? How did, okay, actually, how did you get into it to begin with? That's what I'm really interested to know. Yeah, you know, obviously, you started out by noting that I have my master's in Middle East studies and there was kind of this bubble and everybody studied the Middle East. And after 9-11, mm-hmm. we said there were going to be all these jobs to sort of bridge the gap and, and, and try to understand, you know, quote, that part of the world, quote, and that didn't really come to anything. And I think a lot of us in um, Middle East studies, it, it, often what drew us was Islam. And I just, so after getting that master's degree, I just kind of looked at the work that I had been doing in the Muslim community, volunteer work and stuff I'd been doing in the masjid. And I reflected on comments that people had made to me through the years of like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm telling you this. Just people confiding in me over the years and realizing that, oh, there's this chaplaincy program. And at the time, Hartford Seminary was the only place where you could do that and be accredited. And so I just uh, kind of chose prison chaplaincy out of nowhere. And only later did I kind of look back on my life and see signs that had appeared that sort of foreshadowed me going into prison chaplaincy. But if you want sort of an image of prison chaplaincy, I would say it would just be me sitting across from, and I'll just say, uh, an inmate and them just sort of crying or sometimes even using language that they might not use. (laughs) with an imam around. Yeah. And uh or and delivering sad news, sometimes news of death in the family. But also imagine that that inmate could be not Muslim because we also serve everyone who comes to us. And sometimes in the prison, you know, you would have it could be anybody who, who lost a family member and whatever chaplain was on duty would be the one to break the news and comfort yeah. them. So uh you develop your own way of talking to different people, giving them difficult news, you have to constantly foster uh, good rapport with all these different elements. So, you know, you have 
inmates and you have officers and you have administration and you're juggling all these sort of constituents and you're trying to be a positive force between and among all these different groups. And in the process, somehow uh, you're trying to remind everyone that there's God overseeing this whole thing. So I, I took that very seriously in the prison and I, I have a whole, I'm working on a book. Supposedly it'll come out. That's excellent. Yay. <laughs> Now that I put it on the record, I really have to do it, but (laughs) yes, you do. It just talks about, it just gives a bunch of vignettes of all the different ladies that I met and that I think about pretty much every day uh, during the course of my prison chaplaincy. That sounds incredible. And I'm really excited to read it in the future, inshallah. How you mentioned that you serve non-Muslims as well as Muslims. Uh, what would you say is like? Do you have a different approach to to how you do that? I'm assuming you know with Muslims you're going to be more explicitly Islamic. Um, maybe I'm wrong. How would you describe you know your your approach? Well, I think with Muslims they're definitely coming to the chaplain because you are a Muslim chaplain, right? I mean, if if I and and this is one of the issues I have with sort of conceptualizing chaplain is sort of this blank slate that is just listening because um, none of us is a blank slate, first of all. And second of all, the people who come to us aren't coming to us because they want a blank slate. If they wanted someone to just listen and say, well, I don't know, what do you think all the time? They would go to like a, a licensed mental health counselor, right? Like a secular counselor. But the fact yeah. that they brought out a Muslim chaplain tells me that they want a kind of therapeutic relationship that is rooted in Islam. And with that comes certain, I should say, stances or things that are taken as truth. And that can be the case. And we can also be welcoming and, and, and non-judgmental. So so yeah, that's uh that's the caveat. I don't even remember your question because I kind of just got off on it. <laughs> uh, no, I, that was a great point to make anyway. Uh, although the original question was about, you know, the differences in approach between like a Muslim, serving yes. a Muslim versus a non-Muslim. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So with a Muslim, they're definitely looking for that. And with a non-Muslim, you know, I, I don't know what anybody's, I, I find that a lot of the prisoners believe in God. And so I might just tell them, you know, think about what God is trying to tell you in this situation. You know, you you might not figure it out today and you don't have to figure it out. Right now you're just feeling what Mm -hmm. you're and I urge you to feel that and 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 let it out. And you know, I'll be in the office tomorrow and you can come back then and you can just be with me and cry because I know that the units that these inmates live on are just big dorm rooms basically. It's 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 just like a bunch of bunks in a big room. And often, you know, the prison environment fosters a sense of, you know, oh, I have to put up this front all the time that I'm tough. And so I always would say, I'll be here on this day. This other chaplain will be here at this time. And if you need to come back and just be a mess in my room, in my, in my little office here, calm down and be a mess. You know, it's okay. But Finding that safe space for them to just be vulnerable, really. Exactly, exactly. But I, as a chaplain, yeah. I'll try to say to them, you know, there is God in this situation and may not feel that way. But in time, uh, I think you'll be able to figure out just how that is the case. So it is a little a bit of a leading question, but uh, <laughs> I the answers necessarily. No, I appreciate that. And I think it's really important uh, for 
anyone who's interested in the field, uh, and I think this is a question, uh, an issue, especially for Muslims, again, much like myself, where we're kind of raised within a particular bubble with a particular idea of what it means to engage in da'wah, whether with Muslims or other Muslims. And there's often a perspective of of leading, of being like, here's knowledge and let me share knowledge with people. And this knowledge will push people to do X, Y, Z, as opposed to to just, again, like being there in in a spirit of iman and ihsan, I think, is uh, a way of looking at it. Yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes I think, I mean, knowledge is, don't get me wrong, a beautiful thing in the core of Islam that said there's many kinds of knowledge, you know, as the sages once said, there's a ma'rifa, there's, you know, knowledge of God, and and then there's and there's like book knowledge. and and but, but Islam is not just about packing as much information as you can into your brain. It's also trying to process that information, act on that information, and not become like a, a, a robot. Uh, in the process mm-hmm. so so yes so following up with that um your essay was very much about uh about recovering from burnout or actually experiencing burnout itself from the work that you did in particular you mentioned like uh prison and hospital chaplaincy and your own experience with with burnout and how it impacted you both like physically as well as emotionally could you talk a little bit more about that? Because it, you know, when you talk about it from the outside, this whole issue of chaplaincy, it sounds kind of fluffy, right? Like, oh, you go and you listen to people, and you know, you try, you kind of make them feel better. And what this entire anthology did, really, and I think that was a very important uh, element of it, was highlighting how truly immersive an experience it is, and it's not a kind of nine to five job that you can just leave at home. It requires your humanity to be present. It requires you to pull from emotional resources. uh, And you are going to be changed as a person after engaging in that. So from from where you're at, having kind of been through the grind and, you know, being in a place of experiencing burnout, just like, tell us about that. Well, I, I I was for five years a prison chaplain. Um, and I loved the job. I loved the work. Absolutely loved it. Um, unfortunately, I I left because I was kind of in a um, uh, a situation where I had a retaliatory uh, supervisor that made it very difficult for me. And I just finally had to decide where my limits were. So I went into organ donation. And it was on this job that I um, had the nervous breakdown that you referred to. So of course, I, I I entered organ donation, uh, studied sort of the Islamic opinions on it, um, and obviously uh, approached families in hospitals. Um, I was not a chaplain per se. I want to keep <laughs> make that very clear. But okay. it was a chaplain-like job because I would usher people through the death process with their loved ones and be with them. But a chaplain would not. I want to make that clear. A chaplain does not approach people to donate organs. <laughs> but um, <laughs> in that job, however. I had was exposed to the same stuff that any uh, caregiver might, one traumatic scenario after another in hospitals all over the Western New York region, anytime, day or night. Um, I could, uh, one day I was called out to the same hospital three times in a row after coming home. Um, And so that particular day, I had gone out in the morning, I had spent several hours taking in information about a um, pediatric hanging that occurred 
Uh, and then when it was clear that there would be no end of life decisions that day, I left that situation. And then I was called out to another hospital two hours away and involved myself in another situation. And you're reading hospital charts, you're talking to social workers, you're getting a picture of this family and everything that's going on in terms of the emotional dynamics and the physical injuries involved. And I uh, approached that family for a donation and they declined. Uh, and then I was sent out to a third location, uh, just under two hours from the initial, uh, from the second location. And uh, I, it was there that I was supposed to return at 2 a.m. that day. So oh, wow. Eight, and I was physically and emotionally exhausted, and I think I was just pushed a little bit too hard that day. And I literally was in my hotel room at midnight, knowing I had to get up and go back to this hospital at 2 a.m. to be with this family for withdrawal of care and subsequent organ donation. Mm -hmm. And I felt this wave of anxiety. And yet this wave of responsibility, well, you have to be there. You've already met this family and you told them you would be there and you're going to do your job and you're getting paid right now. You're on the clock. And then this other voice that said, stop, absolutely not. You can't do this. Uh, and I couldn't sleep, but I couldn't stay awake. And so I had these two sort of pieces of me butting against each other. And as I say in the book, when the body says no, it has the final say and yeah. literally I was experiencing what I later found out were fight or flight symptoms, just uh, heat, uh, rushes of heat, and then chills all over my body and, and just shivering and just horrible, horrible. So I, needless to say, I didn't show up that night. Mm -hmm. And that began a process, a years long process of me learning about, truly learning about what anxiety is. It's not just somebody consciously worrying about a particular thing. Right. It's an inborn biological response in the human body that comes about after experiencing uh, a trauma. So uh, needless to say, it, it was hard, but uh, it helped me as a chaplain because I now understand very personally what it's like to feel like you're at war with your own body. Um, yeah. And my recovery, as and I hint at it in the end, but I don't really talk about it too much. My recovery was partly about overcoming colonized mind uh, as a Muslim, because there are so many therapeutic interventions out there that I think we would categorize or label and say it's non-Islamic or even it's, it's un-Islamic, unnecessarily so. And I grappled with that. Like, why isn't it enough for me to read Quran and not be better right away? Um, right, right, yeah. And daily prayers. What's wrong with me? Why isn't it working? I must not be a good Muslim. This alone should work for me, right? And so feeling... That's really common uh, questions that a lot of Muslims have um, whenever they are dealing with anxiety or depression or a variety of different issues. You're very right. This... Uh, this internalized mindset of like, oh, if I'm a good enough Muslim, these things would help. Right. And and then I and then one day I just kind of remembered the hadith that that the word of wisdom is the lost property or the lost stray of the believer. And wherever he finds it, he's more deserving of it. Mm -hmm. And I began to look at things like um, acupuncture, which obviously comes out of Chinese medicine, 
um, taking herbs, um, even yoga, which I understand uh, has some origin, perhaps in Hinduism. I'm not quite clear, but when I'm doing yoga or any of these things, I know my intention. I'm not practicing a, 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 a Hindu practice. I'm not saying that the cure is in what I'm doing. The cure comes from God, but mm-hmm. um, me taking this herb or uh, me engaging in a series of exercises, uh, that's always important to remember no matter what you're turning to for relief. So uh, when I really looked at that hadith, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I have a right. I have a right to anything that works for me, that doesn't harm me, that isn't Mm -hmm. in my religion. And if it works for me, I'm going to take it as it is. Um, And when I did that, I was able to deal with that additional burden I was carrying of just feeling guilt. That's a really valuable insight. And I think that can be applied to so many people who, as you said, we have the right to these different methods and treatments and there's nothing inherently wrong with them if there's nothing explicitly prohibited in those things. Um, and we're starting to see a little bit more awareness of that in, in some Muslim circles. Anyway, I know Sheikha Dr. Rani Awad is really, really passionate with her work um, with Manistan for mental health and you know exploring different treatments and making Muslims aware of what those treatments are and just encouraging pursuing of those treatments if you need them and yeah so that's that's really valuable and thank you so much for sharing i know that it sounds like such a difficult process that you went through had to experience and as you describe in your essay the the process of seeking those treatments and uh, and setting those boundaries for yourself as well as a means of preserving your future effectiveness too Yes. And anybody who buys the book, uh, Mantle of Mercy, in, in that piece, I, I name drop some of the um, experts in the trauma field, particularly somatic counseling sort of, it, it places more emphasis on monitoring your bodily sensations and what that's telling you. Because a lot of us, and I think this is true in the religious field, you know, we immerse ourselves in words and texts and, and, and oral teaching and um, and if you're also a giver, you can give and give and give so much that you actually start to ignore the signs that your body is giving you saying, I'm not well. Um, so yeah. I would people to go and look up those names that I drop and, and read some of those books. For sure. All right. So now we're going to take like a slightly different twist on this discussion. So two of the essays. OK, I do want to start off by saying, like, I really enjoyed the majority of this anthology. There were some truly wonderful essays in there. I really enjoyed Islam at the Alcatraz of the Rockies, and that was Insights into Prison Chaplaincy and Prisoners' Needs. There was A Chaplain's Call for Pastoral Care in the Masjid by Joshua Salam. I think this was, like I said, one that I resonated with the most because it brought up so many excellent points about chaplaincy within the Muslim community, uh, and particularly a masjid context, you know, tensions and conflicts between such roles. And, you know, I, I felt like it was kind of advocating for more awareness and and the need for Muslim chaplaincy in within Masajid or Islamic centers. And I like for me, that's a, a very deeply personal passion uh, point, I guess you could say, because of my own community work and and realizing how many gaps we have in that. Uh, and a really, really powerful one, subhanAllah, was by Suhaib Sultan, uh, rahimahullah. Um, on what he learned from uh, the essay was titled what i learned from the prophet about death and dying and that was just so extremely moving it was 
so powerful. You know, he had the cancer diagnosis, I believe. And so he documents his preparation for death. And it was, oh man, like I can't, I think I nearly cried for that essay. And I'm not a crier, generally speaking, because it's such a relevant reminder for everyone, I think Muslim or non-Muslim, but of course, especially as Muslims who are connecting with uh, the Sunnah of Rasulullah and, you know, how we're told to remember death, the destroyer of pleasures, and to read Sahib's insights. And they're just, they're so gentle and personal and moving. And it makes you just want to stop and reevaluate your own life right now. What are you doing? You know, if, if we were given notice of our impending death, like what would change? What would stay the same? What would we now reprioritize? That one absolutely stuck with me so much. And so I, I do highly recommend if anybody is interested in this book, these essays were absolutely powerful and moving. There were some other, you know, decent ones as well. Some I didn't resonate with as well. But then there were two that really <laughs> ground my gears. And one of them was by Jamal Bey, who is a military chaplain. And frankly, I it came off to me as a lot of military propaganda because he kind of glosses over the part about being... Um, somebody engaged in active military duty in Muslim countries where the victims are other Muslims. And instead of giving any attention to that, it was all very much like, oh, woe is me. It's so hard being a Muslim in the military and other Muslims are engaging in, in suicide bombing. And this is very traumatic to me. And the glaring elephant in that essay's room was, you are literally part of an imperial and unjust imperial invasion of a Muslim country. Where's your ethical dilemmas there? Uh, so that that really got to me. And I guess I, I just want to get your insight. How do we deal with the issue of Muslims, not just in the military, because I know that's a very broad spectrum and, you know, there can be a lot of debate on that, but particularly, especially this angle that was taken in terms of here's a Muslim who references being actively engaged in warfare against other Muslims, literally killing other Muslims, but we're supposed to feel bad for them because, oh no, it's so hard <laughs> to be a yeah. Muslim in the military and, and, and the non-Muslims around you are not don't trust you because you're a Muslim. Well, uh, in, in true chaplain fashion, um, <laughs> I'm not going to agree or disagree with you or him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, and what I mean by that is, well, to start, uh, I'm looking at what he's trying to do in the piece and the piece has a limited scope. Um, he's talking about sort of his coming of age story, going from being a soldier who was raised Muslim, but didn't really know how to advocate for himself as a Muslim in the military to now being a Muslim chaplain in the military and just kind of outlining that. So he revealed some things and he he was vulnerable in that and, and mentioned some things that you talked about. Uh, in particular, I noted, you know, that he went into basic training and he was doing this particular maneuver where he was sort of scuttling on the ground uh, with a gun in his hand with sort of simulated gunfire above him. And then the Adhan played and he thought to himself, wait a minute, is it really prayer time? And he realized that the Adhan was part of the reenactment. Mm -hmm. And he it, he noted, he says, and I'll quote, it felt egregious for the Adhan to be playing, both for the sacredness of it, but also because of what it implied. Muslims are the enemy. And yet he talks about, so here he is in basic training, feeling uncomfortable as a Muslim. But yet he talks about how even in the military settings, he says, it can be hard to relax 
as we are viewed as potential traitors, uh, yet solace in what should be the sanctuary of the masjid can be elusive as we are viewed there as potential traitors. So I think his is a classic case of just people who are in who are hybrids. They're in this hybrid situation. And I think if you and him were to sit in a room, I'm sure that you would probably agree on much more than you think. I don't know how he works out the ethical dilemma of fighting in Muslim countries. However, mm-hmm. I also know, I also don't know how Saudi Arabian soldiers can work out the ethical dilemma of what they're doing to Yemen. Absolutely. I don't, yeah. I don't know how the Moroccan army can work out what it does with the Western Sahara, who are Muslims. Mm-hmm. So military institutions are these necessary evils that can sometimes function for good and, and, and oftentimes for bad. And I can't tell you how to work that out as a military chaplain because I'm not one. But I certainly hear what you're saying that I don't think he meant it as sort of a self-centering piece, but it is about his struggle as a as a military chaplain. And it, and it does seem like it is a struggle for him. So I don't know if that'll please either of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, as you said, true chaplain fashion. That was, uh, that was a very chaplain-like answer. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that you provide that insight um, for myself. I'm definitely all up in arms about it. Pardon the pun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so there was another essay as well. And I feel like this one in particular um, is related to a larger issue. So uh, Alfaro Kaki's essay and for those who don't know, Alfaro Kaki is a very staunch advocate for LGBTQ, queer Muslims, not just in providing them with safe spaces, but insisting and advocating for the belief that homosexuality um, is not haram, is not prohibited in Islam, and demanding that Muslims accept this. And in his essay, a lot of it uh, was very much telling Muslim chaplains that part of their job is to support queer Muslims in in their sexual identities and being proud about it, not telling them that these actions are haram and implying that anything less than full-fledged support of the LGBTQ movement and especially for LGBTQ Muslims, that it's harmful, that it's homophobic. There is a section where he lays out Cass's framework for understanding the process of gay and lesbian identity formation, which emphasizes identity acceptance and identity pride. So again, that that really strong underscoring of you must support them in being proud of this identity. Uh, and then he ended with saying that uh, when the Orlando uh, shootings happened, you know, there was a joint Muslim statement on the carnage of Orlando, and it was signed by over 200 different uh, imams and community leaders. And if I recall correctly, like that statement in of itself was condemning the violence that had taken place. But there was a sentence about how most Muslims adhere to strict Abrahamic morality. And that means, you know, not accepting homosexuality as permissible. And so he pushes against that and says, you know, it was it was harmful. It pushed queer and trans Muslims away. It inaccurately presented Abrahamic traditions as monolithic and exclusionary of LGBTQ people uh, and essentially was really angry uh, that these imams and community leaders uh, reinforced that homosexuality. And that essay, it really bothered me that it was in this anthology. And it made me think about how is this field, Muslim chaplaincy, 
um, being affected and compromised in different ways. Like how was this particular take kind of shoehorned in there? And honestly, I found that it was, it, it felt very shoehorned in there, you know, like, oh, we haven't talked about this. And whereas like every other essay, whether I liked it or not, focused on the chaplain themselves or, you know, spiritual insight, this was very much about promoting the LGBTQ movement and insisting that Muslims not only, this wasn't just about like, oh, hey, you know, as Muslim chaplains, like you should be a spiritual uh, presence or a kind, compassionate presence for, you know, LGBTQ Muslims, because of course we need that no matter what a Muslim is going through, however, whatever sins they're committing, they still deserve to have a fellow Muslim be with them and express, you know, compassion and, and just be with them. But rather, this was very emphatically pushing a particular angle, which was if you do not support them in embracing this identity and acting on this identity, then you are doing something wrong. So, you know, what's your take on this? Well, I think, you know, we have to tease out a few different threads here. And one of them is the is affirming. What does it mean to affirm? What exactly are we affirming? So he says, for example, and I'll quote, while many may not be able to directly offer LGBTIQ Muslims the theological affirmation that I feel is inherent to Islam, and which is integral to my own ministry and the care I provide, all should be able to affirm that queer Muslims are Muslims and are a part of the Ummah. And I thought to myself, if that's the only request, I think that most of us can do that because it is problematic to say, well, you're gay, therefore you cannot be Muslim, right? Do we say, oh, well, you're alcoholic, therefore you cannot be Muslim. You've had sex before marriage, therefore you cannot be Muslim. No, you committed a sin, right? And but that doesn't mean that you're not Muslim anymore. And we drive away when we tell them that. So we need to be more nuanced in our language. But also there's a difference between being something and acting on that thing. So I can have same-sex attractions, but if I don't act on those things, I'm actually rewarded for that struggle. So the, the issue that I see in this piece, and I do agree, I was I was somewhat surprised and felt it was shoehorned in there was the fact that there was no different differentiation made between sort of, I, the, the, the phrase I'd like to coin is affinity without affirming. I can, have okay. affinity, I can have affinity with you on the basis that we're both Muslim, but I can't affirm a particular action because I think it will result in spiritual harm to you if you were to act on it. But let's talk about your feelings and the traumatic experiences you've had. So he talks about some of the LGB people that he's spoken to who have experienced sort of violence even at the hands of their own family. He talks about someone who believed they couldn't be couldn't be gay and Muslim, so they stopped praying. And that's probably somebody in their life who approached them in a totally wrong way. So sort kind of forcing people to choose, well, you can't be gay and be Muslim. And that I think is problematic. And I would agree with him that um, we need to address that. But I also agree with you. I think that um, this book is highlighting Islamic chaplaincy, chaplaincy that has to be informed by Islam. And ultimately, Islam is Allah communicating to his creation that which is best for them and being confident in that knowledge. 
And so, as you know, as a prison chaplain, I counseled women who had same-sex attraction. And uh, I wish I could tell you a particular sentence or phrase that made them feel welcome. But all I can tell you is that when I left, this one inmate was so angry with me and she was the same-sex attracted inmate. And she said, I don't know if the next person is going to see me for who I am because you know that I am, you know, have lesbian feelings and you know that about me, but you see that there's more to me than just that. And I don't know if the next person will. And so it's a hard tightrope to walk, but it needs to be walked and chaplains need to hold firm. And um, a lot of the places that chaplains are learning have become totally inhospitable to free speech and free religious practice. I mean, I just have no idea how the university chaplains are doing it nowadays. I don't work there, so I can't tell you. But I will say this. I felt, and I expressed this to others, that if if you wanted to include a piece on uh, chaplaincy and ministry of presence, to Muslims with with LGBT feelings, that Wahid Jensen would be a better choice. He has a podcast. Definitely. Yes, called Beyond the Rainbow. Uh, Wahid Jensen, I really think that a piece from him would have been good because um, he affirms the teachings, but he advocates, as, as we all do, struggling against our inclinations. And we all have terrible inclinations that we deal with. Absolutely. Another thing I would... I would urge people to do, and especially university chaplains, is to read a book by Carl Truman, and it's called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. And he actually talks about how the LGBTQIA alliance is actually not that strong of an alliance when you pick it apart. The T sits rather uncomfortably with the L and the G. Yeah. In order to be a woman attracted but to other women or a man attracted to other men, you have to identify the other person as a man and a woman. You have to reinforce the gender binary. Yes, absolutely. I I always did find that quite ironic. (laughs) Yes. And he gives an example. He talks about a woman who was a lesbian, married another woman, and then the woman decided she was a man. And she was, was, it was no longer what she wanted. But then if she didn't affirm her partner, she was, quote unquote, transphobic. So it just it just it, it just falls apart, really. Um, but he explains it much better in that book that, than I could. Part of the issue is and I hear Sheikh Hamza Yusuf talk about this all the time. He says, know the time you're living in. Mm-hmm. And I chaplains and anybody really know the climate that you're working in. You know, know the climate that you're working in. Know the intellectual isnad, so to speak, yes, the movements that are going on right now, because they didn't just come out of nowhere. And that book, Strange New World, will give you an idea of the intellectual sort of pedigree of where a lot of these movements are coming from and what is epistemologically wrong uh, with them. And you need to know this, not to judge people or come down on people, but to just simply better understand where all of this came from. Because, I mean, it's all very new. And it's one thing to say, I don't know who I am existentially, right? People come to their religious leaders. I'm trying to figure out who I am. It, this, is a, this is a human problem throughout human history. Who am right. I? Who am I here? But we now have a problem where we don't even know who we are biologically. On a fundamental yes. biological level, 
people are saying they don't know who they are. That is a whole different animal than just saying, you know, I, I can't figure out who I am in my path in life. It's like, I don't know what I am. And now we're starting to see people who are identifying as animals and they come to school and they want to meow. I'm not, I'm not mocking. I'm telling you, someone was telling yeah, me. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, kids are coming back from school and telling us this stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you, you say, oh, well, that's just crazy stuff. Well, no, it's becoming very mainstream. So um, that's a long way of saying that I agree with Brother Farouk that there needs to be an understanding that you can have these feelings and be a Muslim and you should be welcomed in the masjid. But if you were to come in the masjid and start saying that these actions are, that acting on these feelings are okay, well, then we would have to go down a different route in terms of our conversation. So uh, again, Wahid Jensen, Beyond the Rainbow podcast, I would really um, invite people to, because I think he's really, he is a chaplain for those people. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with you on uh, Brother Wahid, mashallah's work's like incredible. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the element of how chaplains in particular do need to educate themselves about the origin stories of these movements and so on and so forth and being able to navigate these issues because yeah for me it my definitely like my issue of contention was not we have to recognize them as muslim because of course we do right like we can't just take fear of them because of their sins just as yeah. you know we are not to be feared because of our given sins but rather the fundamental issue of supporting somebody through islam and with islam as opposed to supporting them and then trying to make Islam support that too. Right. Uh, and I think that's be an ongoing issue for anybody involved, not just in chaplaincy, but any kind of community work really, because these are issues that are coming up more and more often. With, I mean, just as a parent, these are things that we need to be aware of and address and deal with because our kids are finding out about it, whether through school or through media, or through their peers, whatever it might be. And therefore, it does become even more of a responsibility for those in community work and positions of leadership and, and authority and influence in communities to know how to handle this or, or to start learning how to handle it uh, in a way that is true to Islamic values in every way, both from a position of compassion as well as a position of principle when it comes to actual Islamic beliefs. So we are uh, running out of time now, and I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your experiences. Before we leave, do you have any final words? Well, I just hope I did justice to the few essays we did kind of touch upon. I only commented on the ones that I've read, and I've read most of them. And I want to thank uh, all the editors of this volume. Again, it's called Mantle of Mercy, Islamic Chaplaincy in North America. And I'd just like to thank Muslim Matters for selecting me to talk about my piece. And I really hope that it helps uh, some of you who are um, dealing with burnout or just kind of struggling with uh, how to go about this world that we're living in right now, which is very stressful. So alhamdulillah, I thank you, Zainab. Well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, to the listeners, please don't forget to stay tuned for the next episode. Leave any comments or questions or reflections that you may have had after listening to this episode. We love to respond if you do have anything to say. And we look forward to meeting with you guys again soon. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.